welcome to the Internal Comms Podcast with me, Katie McCauley. This show is all about getting up close and personal with someone helping to improve the way we communicate at work. Mike Klein initially worked as a political consultant in the US, but for more than two decades, he has devoted his time and his thinking to internal communications. Mike's firm is called Changing the Terms, and it's an apt name. Mike just does not hold safe, conventional views. He has a bold vision for what internal communication can achieve. We don't edit copy, he says, we edit organisations. Listen out for the way he distinguishes different types of influencers inside our organisations for the role we can play in creating differentiation for our organisations in an increasingly crowded and competitive marketplace, and how we can create a truly compelling narrative, a rallying cry maybe, that done right has the power to mobilise an entire workforce. And if you're wondering what distinguishes internal and external comms, the answer lies, perhaps quite surprisingly, in Kentucky Fried Chicken. Listeners, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Mike's advice to us is both highly courageous and highly commercial. So without further ado, I give you Mike Klein. Mike, what a joy to have you on the Internal Comms Podcast. Thank you so much for coming on. And what a delight to be invited. (laughs) The first question I'd like to ask is really just a scene-setting question, I guess. I'd like for you to take a look back maybe at the early stages of your career. And I understand in many ways you had two careers, one in internal comms and one in politics. So let's sort of dig into that slightly. But I'm very intrigued by what early experiences you had that helped form your views and opinions about internal communications today. Well, it's it's funny that you ask because I was um, walking by my old office at 55 Drury Lane, office of a company called Smythe Tord Lambert, which was one of the pioneers of internal communications. And I came to SDL after getting my MBA at London Business School, which is why I came over to the UK in the first place. And after eight years of working professionally, running political campaigns and working in political organizations in the US. And What I came to SDL for was really to try to figure out how to commercialize my previous knowledge, but also increasingly how to approach internal communications in a strategic and impactful way. And it was at a time when the firm was actually moving more towards facilitation, leadership coaching, and a number of very valuable things that just basically didn't resonate with me. Mm. And um, I ended up going in a very different direction. Leaving SDL, I um, managed to get a um, contract to do the merger communication between EasyJet and Go Airways. Right. And 
you know, it's, at a certain level, it's kind of unfortunate to have your best ever job be the first one that you have right, right after you go independent. But working with EasyJet and working with Go at this particular time was really epic. And it was really apocalyptic at the same time because you had two groups of people who were brought together by financial necessity. But that just it wasn't that they didn't like each other because actually on a personal level, people were fine. But the missions of the businesses were fundamentally oppositional. Oh. EasyJet was about becoming the largest lower, low-cost airline. Go was about taking EasyJet out of the sky. Ah, and really, the the acquisition was made because there was nowhere for for Go to go, and EasyJet didn't need to have Go on the sidelines, you know, attacking its opportunity. And and my job effectively was through internal communication to help drive an integration, and help particularly drive a social and cultural integration that would allow the integrate the the overall integration to progress without any loss of organizational momentum. Namely, they didn't want to have any stoppages as a result of communication or as a result of the decisions that were being made during the the merger. And I also learned a couple of really, really valuable things. EasyJet was a, quote, paperless airline back in 19, you know, really back in 2000. Right. Paperless in 2000 wasn't exactly the prettiest thing in the world. <laughs> and we managed to get them to agree to allow us to use paper newsletters. Right. And what I saw in the use of paper newsletters would inform pretty much my entire approach to internal communication strategy going forward. What I realized was that not everybody needed to read the paper newsletters. They just needed to see who else was reading them. Ah. Because that way, if somebody heard something and they weren't sure about it, the first thing they do is they would go to somebody who read the newsletter. Uh-huh. Your influencers. Exactly. The whole influencer theory that has been my bread and butter, or at least my main thrust mm. over the last 20 years, came out of that one simple realization that I saw at EasyJet. Wow. And the second thing that was great about EasyJet was that in an M&A situation, one thing that became obvious was if a decision went goes way, you should have an EasyJet leader talk about it in a very welcoming and very laudatory way. If a decision went EasyJet's way, it should be a respected go leader right. who put the decision into context. Yes. And that was that became the rhythm of this newsletter for you know for the time that I was over there. And I mean, we're talking about two very basic discoveries, but the whole conversation about trust and the whole conversation about influence were really just you know sparked out of you know very very almost minutes like like encounters. Yes, yes. But the, I understand that that experience at EasyJet contrasted quite sharply with subsequent more corporate roles that you had. Abs absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I ended up going from EasyJet to working for the U.S. federal government for a while, 
where it was all about hierarchy and mm-hmm. it was also all about positionality and status. And, you know, to a large extent, they were working, you know, government employees were working to rule in the U.S. at that point. Yes. So the level of engagement and cooperation that you would receive was often fairly minimal and was largely a function of whatever kind of a relationship that you could create with the, with the stakeholders. But I was also working on a big IT project. And so I learned an immense amount about the mindset of IT, IT folks. The IT folks at, at the U.S. Department of Transportation were a lot of people who had built their own systems, which were about to get sunsetted right. by the change program. Mm. And most IT people that I've seen in organizations are much more like artists than they are like, you know, process efficiency people. Right. And they work for their chosen organizations because they believe their organizations will let them, you know, experience professional satisfaction. And bearing in mind also that professional satisfaction for an IT person is doing the work you want to do. Yes. As opposed to doing somebody else's work really well. Right. And that actually turned into the genesis of a lot of my thinking around employee engagement. Right. Yes. Yes. The the idea that there's some kind of a mystical benchmarkable one size fits all number that calibrates the collective and individual enthusiasm of an entire workforce in a simple, neat, and perfect way. Mm-hmm. And this is this is a belief that's driven the internal communications profession and, for that matter, the HR profession for 20 years. But the underlying theory behind it is, you know, you know, there, there's utterly no substance to it. No, it's what could be called bad science, in my view. I think we'll get back to that because okay. I think it's one of our both of our pet peeves, potentially. <laughs> I want to dig into um, changing the conversation, changing the rules we play by. This is a subject, well, it's basically not just changing the terms is the name of your firm, but it's also your agenda, isn't it? It's your manifesto. Oh, absolutely. I just wonder if we can sort of dig into what that really means in practice for communicators. Well, I mean, at a certain level, if you're looking for somebody to run a luxury management conference on an island with 500 managers, there are other people who are probably better suited to do it than I am. Yes. But if you're wanting to have your internal communication align with what you want to do, be executed in an efficient as well as effective way, and do things that are surprisingly positive at both planned and unplanned junctures, then the idea of changing the terms is an idea that could make sense for you. Yes. Of, yes. of, of working with me and of working with the kind of approaches that we've developed and that we bring to the table. Yeah. I mean, I think your your thesis basically is that one of the jobs we have to do as internal communicators at the moment is change the perception. I, I read a line of yours where you said, we don't edit copy. We should be seen as editing organizations. It's a fundamentally more strategic and business-driven role, isn't it? Yeah, it's also a far more ambitious role. And it requires, and this is not just a changing the terms thing, this is an internal comms thing. It requires the communications professional 
to see beyond their laptop and see beyond the submission of their work and the ticking of the box as the outcome of what they're doing. I mean, if you are ghostwriting words for a leader, what that leader is going to say and turn into reality, the reality in turn changes the way the organization operates. You're not editing as copy. You are editing the organization. Absolutely. And leaders increasingly expect us not to produce what we think they'll approve. They're expecting us to say, what would we do if we were in their position? Yes, it does demand a different kind of relationship with senior stakeholders, doesn't it? One that's more based on you know, challenge potentially, asking the slightly awkward question. It's much less of a kind of command control relationship where you're given instructions yes. and off you go. Too many communicators are overly deferential to leadership. Mm. Mm. And it's it's funny that I'm kind of getting into this now because, you know, I'm 54. I went to London Business School. One of my classmates, Tarek Robiati, is the CFO of Hewlett-Packard Enterprise. So it's like my peers and friends are people operating at this level now. Yes. And so that's given me both more empathy for where they're at, but also more inspiration to say, Mike, you've got to step up. I wonder how communicators can develop that confidence to challenge because it must be very difficult early in your career when you just want your leader to pat you on the back and say you've done a good job. It must be quite difficult. I mean, did you learn that over time? Is that just something that comes with experience? It hasn't been an unvarnished or consistent success. (laughs) You know, I've managed to piss off my share of leaders just as I've managed to engage my share of leaders. You know, sometimes you do it out of inspiration. Right. Sometimes you do it out of desperation. Yes, yes. And sometimes when you do it out of desperation, it actually works and it actually catalyzes and upgrades whatever relationship you're in. Yes. A lot of it depends on really looking at what is it that the leader would do if their constraints were removed. When you're editing the organization, part of it is you got to let the leader edit you. Right, okay. Um, rather than self-censoring. Yes, yes. And, you know, it's, it's, I'm not saying try to do this all the time and be completely fearless no matter what. Seek opportunities, build, you know, put some runs on the board. When you've put some runs on the board, you've built some trust, you've built some credibility, they'll ask you for more ambitious stuff. But one thing that I really noticed recently in the last year was I was doing the C-suite research as part of the research I was doing for Happio, yes. um, which is a G-suite digital workspace vendor, looking at the present and future of internal comms. And the C-suite folks were saying, we want you to do this. Mm, mm. We want you to cut the noise. We want you to be strategic. We want you to take initiative. And if you're not up for it, Mm. then we're going to have to come up with alternatives. And the biggest fear that I have for internal comms 
is that internal communications practitioners are right now so deeply in the weeds, so deeply trying to survive their next encounter hmm. with senior management that they're showing no leadership to senior management when senior management actually have an appetite for it. Yes. On the one hand. And then on the other hand, you have external communications that's saying, oh, internal and external, there's no real difference. You know, let's repurpose as much of our communication as possible and have one integrated thing. And that's that's a, the, the internal external convergence is a whole one hour conversation <laughs> with me. But the main thing is that we have a window where on the one hand, senior management is showing more appetite for what we can do, but that we're under increasing competitive resource and confidence pressures to be able to deliver it before that window shuts. You mentioned noise there, and I have read that you make a distinction between noise and volume. And I thought, oh, that's very interesting. Could you just just quickly explain for listeners the distinction there? There's more to it than that. Ah, okay. I was giving a workshop for CIPR Inside here in London yesterday. And I always present the concept of noise with a picture of a clog street in Dhaka, Bangladesh, where I had the pleasure of visit a number of years ago in a previous role. And in this traffic, yes, there was cars, cars piled up, but it wasn't just cars. It was rickshaws. It was tuk-tuks. It was women in saris. It was men in t-shirts. It was people with prayer hats on. There, there, there was so much going on in what was maybe about, you know, a 100-yard, 100-meter space that it wasn't just simply an undifferentiated mass. Right. You know, so this was like the perfect visual. Yes. For illustrating what actually is going on when you're dealing with the concept of noise. When leaders are saying to communicators, stop the noise, communicators need to realize that it's not just simply the amount of communication. So noise and volume, the thing with volume is that volume actually has two definitions when it comes to noise. One is the loudness. Yes. And the other is the amount. Yes. Once you're being able to distinguish the two, then you've got the ability to manage each separately. Right, okay. And then both of those actually go through a common process, which is flow. So as communications professionals... How do we help manage the flow, both of the loudness and of the content, mm. so that the right messages get to the right people in the right way without irritating everyone else? Right. So a lot of that must be about prioritization. Exactly. Prioritization is the one theme that, that all the stuff that I'm talking about right now, and I've been writing articles, you know, courses, discussion guides, what it all comes down to is prioritization. When organizations refuse to prioritize, that's when it's all well, that when it is all when it all breaks down. Mm, and that's when you get that sense of too much noise. It's simply because we're not filtering, or no one is filtering on our behalf what's most important and what we most need to hear, and making sense, I guess, of the landscape that we find ourselves in. That, but also um, when management refuses to prioritize, and then they get 
you know, then they're not seeing anything happening. Communicator gets the blame. So does that come back to your argument about asking the leaders the tough questions? Because you need to go back and say, look, you've got this business plan and you've got these 17 levers you're going to pull to, uh, you know, to achieve these 19 goals. But I need you to focus on a message I can get across to everyone in a way that they're going to understand that is at the top of the list. Right. And that we need to have honest conversations about that list of 19, are all those really equal or do I just have to treat them as equal Yes, because you're unwilling to make the political compromises required to be able to give them some actionability? This was, this was a recent in-house experience that I had. I've got a wry smile on my face because I've worked in many organizations where the politics is um, plays, um, it's like another person in the room, isn't it, almost? <laughs> well, it cuts to a larger issue, which is how much incentive do leaders and organizations have to actually really address what their stated purpose are, what their stated goals, their stated objectives are, or are they more interested in pursuing their unstated goals, their unstated objectives? A lot of the qualitative research work that I do is really about eliciting the gap between, you know, what people, what the organizations say their priorities are, what individuals believe the organization's priorities are, and what individuals' own priorities are. Yes, yes, absolutely. Fundamentally important, that kind of research, I think, for, for communicators. I've, I read a comment in preparing for this interview where, and I think it was really around how internal communicators can differentiate themselves and I suppose attach more value in the eyes of the organization to what they do. And I read this quote from you, which I love. It says, you can ensure that your employees are better informed than your customers or the general public, especially about what is happening in their relevant customer touch points. And I just thought we could really create value here if we could do that amongst particularly employees that are serving customers or building products and services for customers. Where you pulled that quote from actually is part of a slightly larger context, mm. which is really, and again, this came out of the CEO research, the C-suite research I did for, for Happy Hour, which is that there is a huge opportunity for internal comms to drive differentiation in organizations. Right. A far bigger opportunity than engagement ever was. Ah. Because... As we look to the future, organizations, brands, companies, products are going to be examined with increased intensity yes. by ever more empowered consumers and customers. Yes. And if you're not differentiated, you don't get a price premium or you don't get you don't stay in business. Yes. What internal comms can do for differentiation is three things. One is to drive whatever behaviors, threads, what have you, that makes you different. Second, it can drive the differentiation of employees from the general public. And this is crucial because everybody knows about pretty much everything. Mm. I mean, there was a, a, an example... I was, I was speaking with another um, platform vendor, 
And one of his clients was in the retail business, a very, very well-known retail company with a lot of enthusiastic customers. Right. And customers kept coming to the stores asking for product features that the employees had no awareness of. If your employees can't not only meet the information requirements of your customers, but have not have the required context to understand why that product's on the market in the first place, why it's at that price point, and what it is that it's supposed to do. Your, your employees have basically been, been neutered. Also, in preparing for this, again, this may be taken out of, of context here, but on an IC, on the IC Collective uh, website, good shout out for them because they do amazing work. Agreed. Um, absolutely. You say that it is no secret that I think the idea that we have to engage all employees equally is utter garbage. <laughs> I stand by that quote a Excellent. thousand percent. Because... One of, I mean, one of the really counterproductive practices in the employee engagement movement has been to promote a belief that all employees need to be engaged every equally. And that belief is hardwired into the use of aggregate employee engagement scores as measures of organizational health and of manager competence. But the fact is, I wrote an article a number of years ago called The Six Forms of Employee Engagement. And I can't remember them all up to hand, but there was one which was the engagement of the ring. So the ring was like the marriage. It was like, you know, that it was about having total mutual commitment on both sides, or at least having total mutual commitment from the employee's side and the hope that that would be reciprocated by yes. the organization. But then there was what I call the engagement of the mat, where you have somebody who operates more as a wrestler, so deeply committed to the organization, deeply passionate about what the organization can do, and willing to continuously and relentlessly challenge the organization to innovate and to improve. Mm. And normal employee engagement Item, that person might show up as disengaged, right. quote unquote, but that's probably the most engaged person you have. Right, right. Then there's what I'd call the engagement of the gear shift. So that's your person who shows up at 845, puts his work boots on, does his job, eats his lunch, says hi to his colleagues. Five o'clock, he goes home and he works on his boat. Yes. And he's dead loyal. He's grateful to the company. Because he can, you know, he's got a source of income that lets him work on his boat every day. And he doesn't sing the company anthem. Is that person disengaged? It's just another form of engagement, isn't it? Exactly. Because, I mean, the, you know, everybody's context about why they participate in an organization is different. Do we want them to do, say, believe, act think in certain consistent ways? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and we have, a, you know, we as organizations have a right to want that. But trying to make everybody harmonize on having a best friend at work to steal a line from one of the more insidious employee engagement surveys, the Gallup Q12. Yes. 
you know, makes zero sense and is counterproductive. This is a, as I, say, I said earlier, I think this is a little bit of a pet peeve of both of, of both of ours because I did a piece of research not that long ago, and we'll, we'll put it in the show notes, the link to it in the show notes, where we interviewed HR directors about the employer, their employee opinion survey or engagement survey. And we found to a large degree, in fact, we called the research a questionable exercise because what we found was that organisations had locked themselves into this engagement exercise, this measurement exercise, and benchmark themselves yeah. as well. That was a key thing. And they were paying quite a lot of money for it. And they couldn't quite see a way out of it, although they knew deep down it wasn't adding any real value. So they were measuring something. I'm not sure they totally believed in the score and that they weren't doing much as a result of it anyway. So it was. It, I completely agree with you, but there is an entire industry, isn't there, that's making quite a lot of money out of measuring engagement. Well, it's not just that it's making a lot of money. I don't necessarily want to take rice out of someone's rice bowl. Right. <laughs> but I also recognize when someone's taking rice out of mine. Right. There are a number of things that are connected with the over-reliance on employee engagement surveys that cause problems, particularly for internal communications professionals. One is that, you know, these are hugely expensive exercises and internal comms is almost endemically underfunded for what it can contribute. And, you know, we've, you know, one of the things I've been working on the last year is looking at alternative approaches to measurement that can provide a better reflection and a better opportunity for communicators in their organizations to agree on the value that that internal communication, or for that matter, any form of communication provides. But the other element of it is that the benchmarking and the fetish of benchmarking employee engagement, I mean, it's, you know, it's endemic to employee engagement. You've got a score of 80%. You want to compare your 80% with somebody down the street's 80%. Yes. Never mind that their ownership structure is different, their culture is different, their national mix is different, the average age of the employee is different, and there's absolutely almost zero in common except maybe you work in what you think to be the same sector. (laughs) Absolutely. If we don't need to engage all employees in exactly the same way, um, how should we best segment um, our workforces? Well, I think there are a number of ways to do it. I think the key thing, the most important thing you can do is you got to look at the de-influence roles in the organization. Right. I've built out a set of kind of four overriding influence roles in organization. And there's some issues with the terminology because one term, ambassadors, is used to describe pretty much any kind of influence roles. Yes. But if you go back to the historical roots of the term, an ambassador is a formal representative of an organization. So your managers, your leaders, and also your officially nominated change champions or so-called change agents, when they're officially nominated, are part of this ambassador role. Yes. You have a second role of advocates who are people who are genuine volunteers who actually want to help, 
They want to help perhaps in specific ways, perhaps in specific points in time, but they want to help. And nobody has selected them to do it. So that makes them distinct from ambassadors. There's followers, which are the, the vast majority of people in organizations. They're the guys who want to work on their boats, but are totally committed to their jobs when they're working. Yes. But the main group and the group that you really need to take the time and effort to understand are your influencers. And no one chooses to be an influencer. You can start <laughs> to take on influential behaviors. Yes. But by and large, influencers are chosen by their peers. Right. And they're chosen because they're credible. They're chosen because they're reliable. And they're chosen because they offer help, support, insight, knowledge in very specific ways. Mm. And there are two main ways to go identify your influencers. The best way is something called organizational network analysis. And it's the best because you can very quickly do a survey with a whole company and get something that looks like an airline route map. Right, okay. Where you can see, like, the 3% of the people who drive 90% of the conversations. Yes. And once you've identified who these people are, there's still some work to do, trying to get a view on what they do, where they stand, how they connect. But it also offers a lot of opportunities. Right, okay. Because... You know, when you've got 3% of people driving 90% of conversations, you could reduce the communication flows to 87% of the people with no real loss of impact. That frees up resource, it frees up bandwidth, it increases clarity, and then the issue becomes, okay, do you just simply turn all of your influencers into ambassadors? Some organizations do that with mixed success. Yes. Do you simply listen to your influencers? Do you talk to them informally and listen to them informally? Do you make them better informed? Mm -hmm. If you're in a change situation, you've got a lot of benefit to come for making your influencers better informed, even if they're not necessarily 100% supportive. Yes, absolutely. It's much harder for somebody to make something up that's damaging and untrue if they know that to be the case. Of course, the power of influencers... I suppose the power of every employee to have a conversation with others has grown now because of because of an internal social media, external social exactly. media as well. I read your brilliant book, The 55-Minute Guide to Social Communication, um, before this interview. And we'll, again, we'll put a link to it in the show notes. You write the days of one-way, even two-way internal communication are coming to an end. And I also used the word earlier, audience, and I think you pick up on this as well and sort of say we've got to stop thinking about audiences. It's more about community and participants in a process. Yeah. I just wonder what comes next in your view if certainly the, the, the monologue stopped, but if even two-way has stopped, what should communication look like next? Well, I, I would say two-way is actually dead. And it's the millennials who are killing it. Right. I'm doing um, an article, a bit of not quite full-blown research, looking at millennials who've moved into senior positions of an internal comms and you know, trying to get a sense of where they're coming from. And one really nice insight that came in is like that, you know, we've been part of a multi-directional conversation our whole lives. Right. 
Yes. They don't do, millennials don't do two-way communication. And we've got millennial managers at 40. Mm-hmm. We're going to have millennial CEOs in the next five years. Absolutely. Yes. You know, a lot of the structural biases that we have as, um, you know, even Gen Xers like me, but beforehand, a lot of those structural biases are going to go away. This is not to say that millennials are going to kill all of the previous generation com- communicators, because I think actually those of us who um, played with computers in our friends' parents' houses in the 70s and 80s have an understanding about multidirectionality that's no less valid than that millennials have. Yes. We see it consciously where they are just simply born into it. Yes. And I think it's good that actually if we if we do this right, the interaction, the handing of the torch between the generations could actually be quite magical. I completely agree. And it's interesting you make that analogy because I think the same with journalists and storytelling. So you've got these journalists that are now, you know, in their second or third decade of work in internal communications, but that's how they came in. But now you've got this whole emphasis on fantastic storytelling because it's that that lingers in the imagination and the mind. You put journalists know how to tell a good story and then how to spot a good story. They've got a nose for one. So it's it's nice to hear that some of those let's say, old-fashioned skills or behaviours, the Generation Xs, as you say, are still relevant in today's world. They're absolutely still relevant. But, but what's interesting, you mentioned journalism. I've got a kind of a funny perspective on journalism because I'm not a journalist. I'm a political consultant by, by training, by inclination. And my dad was a journalist. Right. My dad still is a journalist. He has a blog called Fred Klein on Sports. But he used to be the sports columnist for the Wall Street Journal in the United States. Wow. And I decided kind of midway through high school that I didn't want to write the news. I wanted to make it. (laughs) And one of the great things about internal comms, and this goes back to the organizational editing piece, is that journalistic skills will remain fundamental to internal communication and to corporate communication going forward. But the intent, the ninja intent is not to write the story or tell the story. It's to actually create the story. To make it happen. Yes. Exactly. Yes. Yes. Which is a much braver and more ambitious goal for us. So this, future of internal communications that you describe is fascinating to me uh, for a number of reasons, but one of which is that I'm the managing director of AB, which is a firm that was established back in 1964. And it has its roots very much in publishing, initially broadsheet newspapers, more now publishing online, uh, publishing still though in print too, and obviously publishing on internal social networks. What's the future of agencies like mine, and indeed teams still publishing content internally? Don't listen to all the hype about video. (laughs) (laughs) The power of the written word in a corporate context is measurable, immeasurable, 
because it does so many different things. It doesn't just simply inform people. It also creates a process through which leaders, communicators, and perhaps readers align on certain visions of reality. I used to say when I was doing you know, my own newsletter work in organizations, that the most important part of what we do happens before we publish, because it's us getting the story straight. Absolutely. And then the delivery of that story is important to an extent, but it's a byproduct rather than the intent of what we, of what we were doing. Now, if you're talking about physical print, physical print adds a certain air of permanence to an organization's um, reputation. And in a time when everything's tumultuous, in a time when everything's changing and unstable, a physical magazine with timeless, evergreen content is something that, A, has intrinsic value itself, but B, it's something that might lie around somebody's house for a number of months. Absolutely. Some of them are delivered to homes, indeed. <laughs> exactly. Yes, and, yes. and, you know, by, by intent. Yes, Absolutely. So um, I see a future for, I see an absolute future for print. And I am very dismissive of those who are dismissive of, of print. Mm, mm. Shell Holtz, interestingly, shares a similar view. And it's interesting. I, go, I now go into organizations where so much of their stuff is digital. They're saying, we really need to be disruptive. We need something printed. <laughs> Prints become the disruptive channel because it's so different from everything else that people are receiving. Well, but that's exactly <laughs> what I did at EasyChat 20 years ago when, when, when I made sure there was a printed newsletter. It wasn't about people um, reading the newsletter. It was knowing who read it. Mm. And I absolutely love the answer because... As soon as I walk out of here, I'm going to say to that content team over there that full of writers that that hard work, that pushing water up uphill with a fork that you have to do to get something signed off, exactly what you've just said. That's the hard work because right. that's, that's the value. That's the value. That's a number of internal stakeholders or divisions agreeing on the message, which is the hard work often. Well, because then that gives them the freedom to act on that, which may be much more important than simply putting the the article out. You also write that there's no such thing as a social media strategy. If it's about media, it ain't strategy. It's tactical at best. Just so people can understand in your um, in your sort of thesis there, what is the main difference between social communication and social media? Social media is a platform. Yes. Social communication is the is the conversation that takes place on in, around, over, and away from the platform. Yes, yes. And that was true when I wrote that back in 2011. And even though internal social media tools like Happio, like Smart, like um, SpeakApp, some others, Social Chorus, are fantastic they themselves do not drive the conversation. They are platforms. Mm -hmm. They are dance floors. They are pitches. Mm. And they create fantastic and better conditions for social communication. But the intent needs to be on the communication and not necessarily on the platform. As you're, as you're speaking, I'm thinking... 
I suppose I'm thinking, is there a sort of slightly elephant in the room question here, which is that in this world where there's multi-directional social communication, genuine conversation happening, where people are talking to each other and listening and ideas are are flourishing and being captured and driving commercial success. What is the role then for the internal communications department? Because it sounds like it's much more of a facilitation role than it is a content creation role. Would that be fair? Um, It's fair, but I don't think it's entirely accurate. Okay. There's a positioning in between that draws heavily on both. Right. Internal comms is not about facilitation. Internal comms is about intent. Facilitation is about allowing the intent of others to come through, which is a perfectly noble thing. I've got friends who are facilitators, and I'm not a facilitation person. Internal comms is about guidance. It's about centrality. It's about letting people know what the direction of travel is, letting people know the principles, the practice, the practicalities, and the values. Mm. In other words, letting people know what the priorities are Mm. and letting people know what the rules are in pursuing the priorities. Mm. And that's particularly huge now that we're at a point where sustainability is becoming organizationally mainstream. That, you know, it's not necessarily going to be enough to hit your numbers every quarter. If you've got, you know, burning plastic behind you, Yes. You know, a trail of burning plastic smoke. Yes. And I'm saying that metaphoric, but it could just as easily be literal. Yes. And so the guidance role of internal comms, um, if it doesn't get subsumed by external comms, is I think one of the things that's going to take us forward. Mm. If it doesn't get subsumed by external comms, let's go there. You said it could be an hour-long conversation, and we haven't got that luxury. But I certainly stood up on a platform that not that long ago, CIPR inside, and argued that um, internal, external, absolutely yes to closer alignment and a closer relationship and sharing of best practice and ideas, but that the two are different. And I believe you share a similar view. I share the same view, (laughs) but I think I've got an analogy and an explanation that you've definitely never heard before. Go on, then. Are you familiar with Kentucky Fried Chicken? I am, indeed, yes. Okay. I was having Kentucky Fried Chicken with my mother-in-law in in Reykjavik, Iceland, this summer. And I've been looking for the perfect analogy to explain not just why— internal comms is different from external comms, but at the same time, how it's different from external comms. I used to deal with like American football and rugby and stuff like that. And uh, my friend Priya Bates says it's like dating and marriage, but I wanted to go something that was a little bit more flavorful, a little bit, a little bit deeper. And something hit me when I was sitting in um, my mother-in-law's place in Reykjavik with my Kentucky fried chicken. And it's that there's a fundamental difference between Kentucky fried chicken and regular fried chicken, fried chicken fried in a pan, fried chicken fried in an exposed pan. You take the exact same ingredients, a chicken, 11 herbs of spices, some oil, 
some flour and you throw it in a pan or you throw it in a pressure cooker like Kentucky Fried Chicken does. And what comes out of that pressure cooker will be unrecognizable from what comes out of that open pan, even though the ingredients are exactly the same. Right, okay. So what is it about that pressure cooker? The pressure cooker has a sealed boundary. The temperature is higher, the temperature can go up higher. There's a sealed boundary, things move faster, it's steamier, it's, you know, it's much more intense yes. inside the pressure cooker than it is inside the open pan. That's the difference between internal and external comms. Internal comms, particularly today, is developed in pressure cooker environments. Managers, leaders, employees are under unprecedented pressure to deliver and to deliver in ways which may or may not be comfortable to them. Mm. That's a lot more different than going out and buying cornflakes. Yeah, no, absolutely. I also think that as employees, we... We hold the organizations that employ us to a higher standard potentially than those we merely buy from. That there's a, there isn't an explicit sort of element in everyone's contract that says this organization is going to communicate openly and fairly with you, but there probably should be. Or maybe implicit in our minds, there is that feeling that we, particularly now with the generations coming into the workplace, that they are going to be communicated with in an open and fair way. Right. Millennials like fairness. You know, millennials never heard John F. Kennedy say life is unfair. Yeah. And, you know, they're not necessarily going to get everything they want out of the cultures that they come into. They may create competitors which have more compatible cultures, and they may do better, they may do less well. And, you know, we're only starting to see this process. Mm, mm. You know, who has, you know, and this is just in the West. I mean, you know, we don't know very much about Chinese millennial. No, no. Business culture. Yeah. But you're going to start to see a lot of Chinese millennials becoming business decision makers and not just in China. Mm, mm. Um, you know, over the next five to 10 years. And that's going to have a huge impact because, you know, the Chinese approach to culture is much more traditional, hierarchical, and authoritarian than where we're moving in the West. Mm, mm. Yes, we've just had Mark Hannon on the podcast who works out of Mumbai. I'm still um, reading his book. He's a great guy. He's a great guy. But that was so interesting. You know, the world's largest democracy, millennials there, you know, um, hugely influential, but quite different, actually, in mindset. We've skirted around, I think, the issue of, of trust. You've said that trust doesn't necessarily follow the boxes and lines of the organizational chart or the formal structures of a policy area or marketplace. It sounds like trust is another one of those multi-directional influencer type activities that happen in organizations. 100%. Mm. I mean, there are elements that transcend it. For example, you know, if you're an employee in a company of 60,000 people, you're not necessarily going to list as one of your trust sources the CEO. But if the CEO has a record of behaving himself and of being 
proactive and interactive and um, collaborative, that story will spread. Yes. So trust is really a combination of influence and the kind of second and third level word of mouth that validates through the influence network. Yes. I mean, I thought the Edelman Trust Barometer this year was fascinating because it was basically, it it, it, worked, it asked the question, if an organisation was going to communicate with you, who would you find to be the most credible and trusted spokesperson? And I think, you know, um, the CEO didn't even make halfway down the list. So the regular employee was up pretty high. I yeah. think the trusted expert was up very high. And the CEO was kind of way further down the list. And I thought, wow, you know, it's Edelman, a PR agency, are now telling us that the future is in terms communications, we're at least activating our employee voices. Right. And, and and also getting serious about your influence networks. Yes. Yes. But the thing that's even more interesting about the recent Edelman Trust Survey is, is that politics is in the toilet when it comes to trust. Yes. And that business, by default, has become a much more trusted actor. Yes. And, you know, we should seize this opportunity to build on that trust and to build that trust. Yes, absolutely. But at the same time, you know, we can only do that if our organizations are functioning and winning. Because, you know, if we're functioning, if we're not functioning and winning, then the mentalities will definitely, go, it will be very hard to maintain that kind of, open and progressive and inclusive mentality when you're retrenching. Mm. I mean, you can try to do it and God hope, you know, and certainly it's key to try to do that. Mm. But with a, a economic downturn rumbling in the works, you know, we've got to take really good care of that right now. We will put that Adam and Trust Brometer slide on, on, on in the show notes because I know which one you mean. It basically said when trust is so low across, as you say, politics, NGOs, uh, business in general, but people are now looking to their employer. And it almost suggested that there was a role that employers could have commenting on, as you say, not just necessarily what's happening within their organization, but more generally around the world. Be careful is my response. Right. Employee activism and corporate activism have some degree of opportunity to be beneficial. But um, the real challenge, and this is, this is particularly something you see in the sustainability space, is that you get organizations to talk rather righteously about the environment or about sustainability, about climate change, or about... Um, you know, diversity and inclusion mm -hmm. and the skeletons in their closet yes. become suddenly visible either to the press or the smell becomes obvious to the employees. Yes. And that's where you start to buy yourself real organizational trouble. That's effectively the anatomy of the way Wayfair walkout, you know, an organization that pre presented itself as being good and virtuous, mm. deciding to doubled down on some policies that alienated some employees to the point where the employees almost destroyed the cultural fabric of the company to punish them. Mm. Are we going to see more of that employee activism, do you think? I think we will see more of it. 
I think organizations will need to assess their vulnerability to it. Yes. And I've got a guide for how to do that, but um, they need to assess their vulnerability. And the, and the vulnerability comes down to the extent to which your behaviors are consistent with your rhetoric and the extent to which that's observable or trackable. And if your behaviors are not consistent with your rhetoric, then you need to fix those gaps mm -hmm. before you start pronouncing yourself as an enlightened corporate citizen. Mm -hmm. Because at that point, the, organ, the your, your internal people could punish you. Mm -hmm. And the thing about social media in this context is that you don't need traditional union structures. You don't need traditional committee structures. No. Somebody can form a lynch mob on Twitter and half the office could walk out in a matter of hours. Yes, absolutely. I and mean, I think it was Google, wasn't it, that the employees yeah. just decided to sign a petition to say we want a little bit more transparency around uh, the Chinese search engine um, and, and hold their, their leaders to account to explain a little bit more what was going on. So. Exactly. And Google's motto is don't be evil. Yeah. Yeah, so how did that fit? Exactly. So it, it comes down to that. I know it gets called this a lot, but I, I'm going to use the term, the say-do gap, basically. <laughs> it's a good term. It works, doesn't it? Let's talk a little bit about measurement, because you've said we need to look for what we want to measure rather than merely look for what data happens to be available. Absolutely. How do we decide then what to actually measure? Well, it, it, dep it depends on what the context for the decision is, but... You know, there are lots of things that show a relationship between an organization getting from point A and getting po from point B. Many of those things can be directly influenced or measurably influenced in certain ways, some of which are direct, some of which are less direct, by internal communication. Mm, mm. So, for example... Um, you know, I like to recommend that people do a lot of open-end surveys. Yes. To ask people, you know, what are, you know, what are the top things going on in your area? What are the top things look, being looked at at the business? You know, what are the top things, um, et cetera. Mm. And then so that you can compare them. You can also measure by doing other survey questions, like getting people to rank a list of priorities, some of which are official, some of which might be unofficial. Maybe one or two might be might be parody just for um, for comedy's sake and for you know to keep the participation rates up. Mm. Um, you can ask people how they define terms because I mean, you know, there's a lot of things you can measure. So observable behaviors, great to measure. Attitudes, great to measure. Recall of official terminology. Um, repositioning of official terminology. Positive repositioning, negative repositioning. Yes, absolutely. And you can measure all this stuff, you can create a baseline, and you can track it. Mm -hmm. Forget about benchmarks, time to start thinking about baselines. Wonderful. And it's also a huge advert for one of my very favorite things, which is qualitative research. Absolutely. <laughs> Just by asking a question like, um, you know, what does success look like? And asking that question of the CEO and then uh, a sample of people throughout the organization, you know, senior management, middle management, line managers, the front line, and getting a sense of how that, the answer to that question is the same or different, will tell exactly. you a lot about the priorities of an organization. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And particularly 
you know, it also ties into the whole conversation about middle management. They get a bad press, middle managers, don't they? Well, and it's not unjustifiable in a lot of cases. <laughs> yes, yes. They're under for, they're under ridiculous amounts of pressure themselves. I, I mean, I I grant them that. And there's a big existential question about the future of middle management. Mm. You know, I was looking at a company that had one employee, you know, one manager for five employees. And I was thinking, could we do something as internal communicators to make organizational understanding in an organization like that sufficiently more efficient so that they can move that number to say one to seven or one to 10. Mm, mm. You know, I mean, internal comms hasn't had the um, research budget. No, that's true. To prosecute this issue. But I think it's something that really needs to be on the table. Do we need so many middle managers to be communicators? And do we need to have, you know, so, show so much obeisance to the, quote, central, unquote, role of middle managers as communicators? Or can we, as internal communicators, help make the management role more efficient by taking some communication stuff off of their plate as well? Mm, mm. We don't have, you know, nobody's done done this research yet, but I suspect that if somebody were to do it, it might have some surprising and interesting conclusions. You've got me thinking, because I'm thinking about it in the context of the gig economy, which I'm sure is going to, it is growing, and it's just going to grow still further still, and remote working in general, however you define remote working, we have to get our minds around how to mobilize and direct and manage these disparate people who are, for want of a better word, peripatetic. I don't know why I'm using that word, but you know what I mean. That's a great word. (laughs) And so, yes, is there going to be um, systems and processes in place that organizations just have to build in order to manage these people that makes, as you say, a large part of the traditional role of the middle manager obsolete. And conversely, these organizations are going to have to get extremely serious about internal comms. Yes. Because internal comms is going to be a large part of what drives the infrastructure. That's why I wrote the piece this past week about um, startups and SMEs. Because, you know, in dispersed organizations... If you're not investing in quality internal comm support in relatively new dispersed organizations, you're putting yourself at a tremendous disadvantage. Mm, mm. Is there a question that you ask a CEO or an FD or someone, a member of the C-suite, when you first walk into an organization and you're just getting to know it as a consultant? Do you have a favorite question that you ask? putting you on the spot now. How much time do you have? (laughs) (laughs) You genuinely asked that question. No, but it's the one that came up to mind. And actually, it's as good of a question as any because it focuses the conversation. It's like, you know, if if a CEO has 10 minutes for me, Mm -hmm. I don't need the whole corporate story, but I need to know what his top priorities are. If, If another CEO has an hour and wants to brief me, I'd like her to tell me as much of the context as possible yes. before she gets into the content. It's a very good question, actually, because it sets the parameters for what comes next. 
Excellent. Thank you for that. You're welcome. <laughs> Your work really reminded me of um, Seth Godin's Tribes book. I'm sure you probably know it, do yeah, you? Yeah, I actually asked him to review my book. He turned me down, but at least was nice enough to send me a note. I've asked him on the podcast, and he was nice enough to send me a note. So <laughs> we're, we're all fans. But I exactly. Think he says something like, a group needs two things to have a tribe, a shared interest and a way to communicate. And that to me, that just sounds like exactly what you're describing. Well, absolutely. And I mean, you know, I belong to one of the oldest tribes in the world. And when I was 16, I was in Jerusalem, and I was having Sabbath dinner with a family from, I think it was from Romania. Um, and there was another guy there who was from um what was then called Rhodesia. And we all had a great conversation, despite the fact that the host spoke no English. Wow. Because we knew the context of a Sabbath dinner. We pointed, we talked, you know, it do, the, the way to communicate, the way for a tribe to communicate doesn't have to be a language. It can be a shared history, a shared story, a shared interest, mm. a shared geography. Yes. Because of your background in um, politics, I'm going to really put you in the hot seat now and ask you to make a couple of predictions. Um, you don't pull your punches when it comes to Brexit on Twitter, I know. But where are we going? Where's all this going to end up? Do you want to make a prediction? I'm going to make one fairly aggressive prediction, which is that the next member of parliament for Islington North will be a fellow by the name of Nick Wakeling. Nick Wakeling is seeking to unseat the current incumbent, Jeremy Corbyn. And I say that because the petition to revoke Article 50 collected 27,000 signatures in Islington North. And even though the campaign doesn't have access to those numbers, it says that there's a very strong degree of support in that constituency for the Remain position. Mm -hmm. And with the right amount of, um, of publicity, the right amount of energy, a potential, there, there is potential for an upset there. And of course, that upset could help drive kind of, you know, particularly if it's, if it's in the offing, say, you know, even a week before the election, it could rearrange the, the seismic plates of the whole election process. If you can take Corbyn out of the picture before the election even concludes, wow. then the, the whole landscape changes. Mm. So, yeah, it's more of a hope than a prediction. But those, you know, the, the level of Remain support in that constituency is such that it's not completely outside the realm of possibility. We've had a lot of people on this podcast around Brexit saying that they were caught out. In fact, we had Stephen Waddington, the PR guru, saying that all of a sudden he realised what a bubble he was in when he saw the result of the, of, of the referendum. Did you feel that way as well? Or did you predict, it was, did you predict where we were going to end up? Um, I had a bad feeling about four or five days. A bad feeling meaning I had a sense that Remain just didn't, wasn't far enough ahead of the polls. Mm -hmm. 
to um, to pull out. Mm. And I was actually in Paris with uh, my father-in-law, my wife, stepson, for the Iceland-Austria football match at Euro 2016. <laughs> and we were staying in this student house that we had rented as a B- at Airbnb. Place had uh, shower curtains for curtains. <laughs> and I was sleeping in my bed and I was waking up and I turned on my phone and I just looked at BBC and I saw the little thermometer. It was just a little bit over the right. Everybody was asleep, so I didn't verbalize it, but I gave the loudest silent scream that I possibly could. But I also knew that it was coming. Mm-hmm. And I also knew it was coming when Trump got elected in the U.S. Yes, it was a sign, wasn't it? It was, it was the same. It was, it was two halves of the same match. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Is he going to get a second term, do you predict? It's, that one's harder to predict. Okay. Not that it, not that anything is easy to predict these days, but um, I mean, I'm I'm both a member of the Lib Dems and of the Democratic Party in the U.S., and I'm not happy with the current crop of Democratic candidates. Mm-hmm. Um, Biden and Sanders don't. You know, Biden's a nicer guy, but Biden and Sanders don't impress me at all. Elizabeth Warren might win the nomination but I'm not sure she really energizes the core base of Democratic votes. I mean, it's, it's, it's a, there's still a long game to play. Yes. But there's no real Democrat who's capable, in my view, of energizing the Democratic base in places like Michigan, Wisconsin, and Ohio for me to feel really confident. Mm, mm. And I don't, think to, I don't think the impeachment proceedings are going to get rid of Trump. The guy's shameless. Just on a personal level, I'm always I always like to ask this question of people that have lived outside of their original homeland. You've lived outside the US now for how long? About twenty years. Twenty years. So so where is home? Or do you just are you a, a global citizen? I mean, home is dealt in the Netherlands. Mm-hmm. Um, it's where my wife and my stepson live with me, and it's a gorgeous place and it's the kind of place I've always wanted to live. Um my folks moved from Chicago to Phoenix, so I'm going to go see them at the end of the month um, after going to Priya Bates, um, speaking at Priya Bates' conference in Toronto. And um, it's going to be great to see the folks, but Arizona's not home. I didn't grow up with cactus. <laughs> but it's lovely and warm, I guess. It's Yeah, certainly that time of the year, the, the, weather, the weather's quite nice. But, you know, home is also, a, it's, it's also a spiritual condition. Home is with your tribe. Mm, that's why I asked the question in a way, really. Yeah, I mean, when I go to an IABC World Conference, mm-hmm. there's definitely that feeling. Yes. When yes. I go to a Tottenham Hotspur match, there's that feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, or for that matter, when I visit the University of Wisconsin or London Business School, I'm staying up by London Business School now. I mean, you know, these are you know, my extended tribes. And even, even, you know, even going to Iceland, I'm kind of starting to develop a sense of being an extended member of the Icelandic tribe. 
It's interesting because it just reinforces the point that we mustn't put people in too many pigeonholes because people can be uh, a member of, as you say, many different tribes and many different things at once, which makes stereotyping people really, I think, really dangerous. I was going to quickly flip to those quick fire questions as probably taking up quite a lot of your time. Um, What would most surprise people most about Mike Klein? That I wrote a rap song performed in front of 5,000 people with um, 30 fraternity brothers and sorority sisters backing me up um, and won a prize back in 1986. But the rapping career didn't continue on from that? Or? No, I, I come up with raps and poetry for you know, various people at various points in time. Okay, okay. Um, you know, I decided not you know, not that it was really much of a decision to make, but I continued with my academic career rather than <laughs> um, calling myself Grandmaster Klein. Um, but no, I, I I find rap a usable art form. Every year I do an annual Changing the Terms poem. And um, that, you know, continues in that vein. Right. Excellent. Look out for that. Thank you. Um, if you could go back in time, what careers advice would you give yourself aged 30? Um, it's a really good question. Um, because when I looked at the question initially, when you shared it with me, I didn't have a really good answer. I mean, I think the one bit of advice that I would have given myself at 30 was be more collaborative. Really? Yeah, I mean, not that I'm uncollaborative, but I I didn't make a point of it at that period. And, you know, I'm and I'm looking to, you know, really build more collaboration around what I'm doing because I'm kind of doing it on my own. You know, I'm getting good following. I'm getting good traction. I'm obviously here. But, you know, yeah, I'd like, I'd like to find some people to do this with. Mm, mm. I think that's actually brilliant advice at any age. Um, Yeah, so thank you for that. What would you do tomorrow if you knew you couldn't fail? And this doesn't have to be a careers-related response. I'd manage Nick Wakeling's campaign. (laughs) (laughs) When you think of the world's best communicator, alive or dead, who comes to mind? Lee Atwater. Lee Atwater was the um, campaign manager for George Bush the first. And he was, you know, he played fast and loose with the rules, but he was, you know, a consummate political strategist. And he was phenomenal and he had a, had a great personality, great sense of humor. And, you know, he made a lot of enemies. Ironically, his closest friend at the end was the head of the Democratic National Committee at the time, Ron Brown, Mm. because they got each other. Right, okay. It comes back, actually, to the point you made very early on about um, EasyJet and Go and how they would answer each other's questions when the other one was in the right or wrong. It's that collaboration, understanding your opponent, if that's the right word, but certainly your partner, I guess, in that. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's respecting the perspectives Mm. that other folks are coming into. I mean, 
you know, probably the single biggest mistake that corporations and corporate communicators make is they spend 90% of their time fine-tuning the message and maybe 10% of the time figuring out who should deliver it. (laughs) So finally, you have... um... You can write anything on a billboard. This is courtesy of the Tim Ferriss Show. You can write anything on a billboard for millions of people to see. Um, What are you going to write on that billboard? Icelandunwrapped.com. Oh, what are we going to find there? Oh, you're just going to leave that hanging? Um, You will find, if you want to go to Iceland and really experience it from a personal perspective, my wife has a travel business called Iceland Unwrapped which really focuses on personalized and group itineraries that don't just show the highlights, the the hotspots, the golden circle, that stuff, but the real sites that the locals really experience and that offers opportunities to connect with Icelanders, whether it's to dine with the Icelanders, to have private concerts with Icelandic musicians, or to network or have, you know, mini conferences with leading Icelandic professionals. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you for that, Mike. And thank you very much for appearing on the Internal Comms Podcast. My pleasure. So that's a wrap for this episode of the Internal Comms Podcast. For all the books and the other resources that Mike and I talked about, head over to AB's website, abcom.co.uk, and on the podcast tab, you'll find the show notes there. And while you're there, you might like to sign up for our monthly IC newsletter. It's called I Saw This and Thought of You. It gives you updates on the show, plus other newsy nuggets from the world of internal comms. If you enjoyed this episode, I would be very, very grateful if you could rate it on iTunes, because I'm told that is the very best way of making this show more discoverable for other IC pros who might find it helpful. And to make sure you don't miss another episode, like the one coming up with the neuroscientist, Hilary Scarlett, it's going to be a cracker, then just hit the subscribe button. Finally, I'd like to say a heartfelt thank you to everyone who is continuing to listen to and support the show. It's people like you that are making this all possible. So until we meet again, lovely listeners, remember... It's what's inside that counts.